Welcome everyone to another episode of Plum Peeps. Burp, I'm so excited. It's another Plum Peeps recording day. Yep, my absolute favorite. Best part of my week for sure. So thanks to everyone for tuning in. Uh, if you want to listen to our old episodes or see our old content, please make sure to check out our website, www.poempeeps.com or our Twitter account. But let's talk today. Monty, today we're doing our first episode of a very little known disease, something called COVID-19. I think maybe you've heard of it. Thanks, Murph. Yeah, I think we all know COVID-19 a, a little bit too well. However, for as much as we know, there's still tons of ongoing questions about it, and one of them has been about long COVID-19. So today we're thrilled to have a new roundtable episode and to talk to two experts in the field who have been caring for patients who are recovering from COVID-19, as well as doing research on long COVID. I think every clinician out there gets questions about this all the time nowadays, so I can't wait to learn a little bit more about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely get questions about this in clinic all the time. I also just from friends and family, especially if they've gotten COVID-19, which is still sort of going around. So I'm, I'm definitely excited to get some more insights for myself. Uh, just as always, our brief disclaimer, this podcast isn't for specific medical advice and the opinions do not necessarily represent those of our employers. So let's meet our guests. Our first guest today is Jason Malley. Jason is an assistant professor of medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. He is the director of the BIDMC Critical Illness and COVID-19 Survivorship Program and the co-chair of the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Post-Acute Sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 Infection. Uh, he is NIH-funded to study post-COVID patients, and he's been my personal go-to for all things long COVID and for any patients I have questions about. So welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining today, Jason. And um, next, I'm so excited to introduce our second um, guest for today, Dr. Ann Parker. Ann is an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins and is the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Post-Acute COVID-19, our PACT team. Ann is also NIH-funded with her research focusing on survivors of respiratory failure and critical illness. Ann, I don't know how you do it all, um, but we really appreciate your time. And thanks for coming on the show today, Ann. Well, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having us. That's our pleasure. So let's dive in. So this is a huge topic. You know, we'll only really have the chance to scratch the surface today, as is common with a lot of these topics. But Monty and I always want our listeners to have at least a thorough understanding uh, so that they can explore it with their patients and, and help take care of them. So let's start at the basics. And that's what are we talking about when we discuss long covid to be more specific, Jason, I want to ask you, is long COVID even the correct name? Is this the definition that we're using for this? What is your working definition of this condition? And are there any formal criteria or definitions that we should know about? Yeah, so long COVID or post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 are two of the common names used in the U.S. Long COVID, I think, was really uh, a name led by patients. And so I, I use it often when talking with patients. I, I wouldn't discuss post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2. It's a mouthful and, and doesn't really mean as much to people because long COVID is so ubiquitous now in the media. So I think it's relatively straightforward to use that with patients and people are familiar with it to some degree. In terms of what it actually entails, it's really patients who haven't returned to their baseline health that they had prior to having the infection after the infection. And it can be in the immediate term, but we tend to define it, and the WHO definition has defined it beginning three months after the infection, because there can be some period of recovery that's prolonged after a virus, especially a respiratory virus, and we don't want to 
over-identify it, um, and really capture the patients who need the care most at specialty clinics. Oh, that's great. So, you know, some patients who have not returned to their baseline after three months after recovering from their acute illness, that, that's really helpful. Um, I think like all things COVID, it has been, you know, pretty scary times, uncertain times, but it's really been fascinating for me to see the medical system work in real time to sort of recognize a disorder, define it, prevent it, and then ultimately treat a disease. So to that end, Anne, can you talk about who the major players are who've been involved in recognizing and describing long COVID or post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2? Jason mentioned the WHO, but I'm curious if there are other organizations we should view as sort of leading the field in this. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think this brings to light a few of the things that have been really positive aspects of the pandemic, if you can say that without it sounding like an oxymoron. Um, <laughs> but, you know, first off is Jason alluded to long COVID being really a patient created term that developed in the, in the spring of 2020 is when we started hearing that circulating on social media. And along that Along those same lines, we've seen a lot of patient-led groups um, who have really pushed forward in terms of identifying challenges that our patients are experiencing in their recovery and, and even fundraising and helping to push forward some research initiatives. Um, so there's been really a patient-centered approach to approaching long COVID or post-COVID condition as the WHO um, has termed the clinical case definition. And then, as Jason mentioned, the WHO has also really been leading the way in a lot of aspects to help unite scientists and clinicians and patient advocates and, and other stakeholders from an international perspective. So in addition uh, to helping to develop that clinical case definition, the WHO has also been conducting a modified Delphi process to mm -hmm. identify core outcomes in post-COVID condition. And that has included international stakeholders, as I mentioned. Um, the first publication, and I can share that with you to, to share with the listeners, is available to, um, and that, that publication summarizes the core outcomes that reached consensus as part of that process. And then there's an ongoing effort um, that hopefully that publication will be coming out in a, in a couple of months that focuses on the measurement instruments to go along with that core outcome set. So a core outcome measurement set to help standardize assessments across programs, across research, ideally across clinical programs as well, so that we can really have a unified front um, in understanding long COVID and, and helping to pilot um, interventions and focused on outcomes that are particularly patient-centered. And then you know, here in the U.S., we also have initiatives being led by the NIH, like the NIH's Recover um, Initiative, um, as well as the CDC's Inspire um, Initiative focused on really understanding um, long COVID and, and, again, pushing forward to um, pilot interventions that, that might improve outcomes. That's amazing. And please do share that paper. We'll we'll put it up with the episode. You know, for listeners who don't know, Modified Delphi is sort of this iterative feedback process to get consensus across experts, really across the globe, it sounds like in this case. So it would be really fascinating to see what they've come up with. Yeah, thanks so much, Jan. And I, I just love the aspect how you, you brought up that, you know, not only are the efforts um multiple stakeholders are there, but patients for, to national to international organizations. 
Um, you know, and I think it's over time, it's been increasingly recognized by patients, as you mentioned, uh, that some had persistent symptoms after COVID-19. And I feel like the medical community heard about this pretty quickly and started establishing clinics to treat these patients and broad studies to try to understand what was happening. And I know Anne and Jason, you both helped run such clinics. So before we go on, I want to give our listeners a sense of what the clinic is, is actually like. And I know you run the post-acute COVID-19 or PAT clinic at Hopkins. So I have two questions for you. You know, who exactly is on that team? And the second question is, when someone comes to post-COVID clinic, who will they be meeting with and for what? Yeah, sure. And I'll start by also just um, mentioning that there there are collaboratives of such programs. You know, these post-COVID or post-acute programs um, have, have really sprung up across the country and, and internationally to support patients. Um, and each program is going to be a little bit different, and that's going to largely depend on sort of local resources um, and, and who's involved in, in developing and building that program. And I know Jason has been um, really involved in the leadership from um, the uh, Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and and can probably speak to some of what he's learned as part of, of that collaborative as well. And Dr. Azola, who co-directs our program, is also a part of, um, a part, you know, has been joining those, those meetings as well. But I guess to give a little bit of history, our program started in the spring of 2020. And at that point in time, I think we all remember that what we were seeing was a surge of critically ill COVID-19 patients coming into our intensive care units. Um, so in March of 2020, we started thinking about how, you know, recovery might look for these patients, what we already knew in terms of post-intensive care syndrome. So understanding that um, even before the pandemic started, we have deca- decades of literature understanding that, you know, patients who are critically ill are at risk for developing impairments in mental health, cognition, and physical function. And so having that understanding, seeing a surge of critically ill patients coming into our ICUs, we decided to really try to launch, really using a grassroots effort to support these patients in their recovery as they were leaving the hospital. And we used a PICS framework because we knew that at least our patients would be at risk for developing some of those impairments. And so we launched, we saw our first patient April 7th, 2020. And we were entirely a telemedicine program at that time due to infection and prevention control measures, right? So, you know, really no one was in clinic and everything had switched um, promptly to telemedicine, which was impressive. Um, And so by launching as telemedicine, we were actually able to overcome some barriers and starting a brand new program, right? So we didn't have to identify physical clinical space immediately. We didn't have to necessarily align clinicians' busy schedules to see patients together in person. And and so we were able to to make use of the telemedicine opportunities to, um, you know, to get our program off the ground. And since then, um, we have developed a hybrid model where we see patients both in person and via telemedicine, which allows us to meet patients where they are, uh, which has really been, again, I think a positive aspect of what we've learned through the pandemic. And we're a primary partnership between pulmonary and critical care medicine and physical medicine and rehabilitation, which is directed, um, that half of the program is directed by Dr. Alba Azola. And like I said, every program is going to be a bit different depending on, on you know, what's available locally in terms of resources and institutional support and funding. 
Um, but we generally do um, an initial records review for patients who are referred to us. And ideally, we prefer to have patients referred by their primary care providers so that we're able to, to build that collaboration um, and uh, support with the primary care team. So we do an initial records review to ensure that A, we have something to offer our patients beyond what their amazing primary care providers are already um, doing to support them. And then to be sure that we can connect them with the providers and support services that are gonna be most beneficial to them. Um, and so that often means a visit with pulmonary and or our physiatry colleagues, um, depending on a patient's needs. Um, and it really starts with a detailed history and physical review of existing labs, imaging tests that are available, um, and then deciding on a case-by-case -case basis what additional workup might be needed. We also make use of standardized questionnaires to assess some of those core domains that we know are important um, you know, for survivors of acute respiratory failure. But we've also, from the very beginning, been supporting our patients who were never hospitalized as well. So we're seeing patients across the the continuum of severity of illness. Um, but standardized assessments of things like mental health, cognition, physical function, return to work and school, um, you know, these are all things that we do as part of um, each and every visit to make sure that we're not overlooking important aspects of a patient's recovery. And then I think the other big um, component is that while we are still working through um, understanding and uh, developing and implementing interventions that are really targeted for the post-COVID population, we take a very rehabilitation-based approach. And so we're supporting patients with physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech-language pathology, um, neuropsychology, and you know, ideally um, social work or community health worker support as well. Thank you so much, Anne, for going over um, that. And I know that you um, alluded a little bit to about who you're seeing um, in the PAC clinic at Hopkins, but I'm also curious, Jason, who is coming to, to your clinic? Um, so I wanted to kind of ask a two-part two question. You know, what are the criteria to be seen in the COVID-19 survivorship program that you run? And do patients need to have a confirmed case of COVID? And are there typical patients, um, you know, were they hospitalized? Those who had mild COVID, are, are those being seen as well? Yeah, that's a great area to discuss. So like Anne mentioned, we began similarly with the knowledge of post-intensive care syndrome and recognition of all these patients on ventilators. And we're really starting just in that spring of the pandemic to informally check in on people as they were leaving and then started to formalize it. But it shifted over the course of that year to the vast, vast majority of the patients we're seeing having mild acute initial illness. They were at home, they were not on oxygen. And of course that was also almost every person in the world who had COVID-19 did not have to be in the intensive care unit. And that began, as Anne mentioned, to be recognized through patients sharing their experience like on social media, organizing these groups together um, and saying that after having this mild initial illness, they were having these unusual unexplained persistent symptoms the core pieces being severe debilitating fatigue, breathing discomfort or shortness of breath, and cognitive changes, sometimes referred to as brain fog. And then there are other symptoms head to toe that people are experiencing. So we began to see those patients actually self-referring to our clinic because they were just searching for answers. 
um, and most were seeing their primary care physician and then finding our clinic through searches online or discussions with other patients and support groups. And initially, we didn't want to restrict the people who could come in, so we our criteria were pretty loose um, and we didn't know too much about this. And we allow people to self-refer and we still do, and we take referrals from other physicians or clinicians. And because long COVID doesn't have a gold standard test, it's really the known presence of prior SARS-CoV-2 infection or, or high suspicion and new persistent symptoms. And, and there's this long spectrum of symptoms. It's very difficult to create a criteria that doesn't end up excluding people who need care. And yet you're saying can't get into your clinic. So we continue to not have strict exclusion. We kind of use best clinical judgment. And like Anne was saying with her clinic, trying to screen people through a nurse. We have a nurse coordinator to triage. And she ended up really starting to do very extensive visits with people because the second they are connecting with someone, they have so many questions of what's been going on and they've been experiencing. So she does 30 to 60 minute triage visits now actually ends up discussing a lot of what we would discuss in a clinic visit anyways, and getting a sense of what the patient has experienced since having COVID-19. And then we have a setup that involves different specialties. The first specialties were ones that we thought could help post-intensive care syndrome, like psychiatry and neuropsychology, a cognitive neurologist, physical therapists with experience in pulmonary rehab, and we've, at, over time, added more and more people, a voice and speech therapist who also is very helpful with unexplained shortness of breath, occupational therapists who focus on cognitive rehab, a neuropsychologist who does cognitive rehab, uh, social work, which is incredibly important and, and very much uh, strained right now throughout the healthcare system. And... Um, and then from time to time, we'll identify new needs, like sleep became a very clear issue. Among almost every patient I've ever seen with long COVID, their sleep has changed in some way, whether it's insomnia, their kind of absence of sleep, or they have hypersomnia and are sleeping way longer than they used to, which is a really unusual problem in sleep outside of this pandemic. Hmm. Um, and so we added sleep medicine as well. And, and that's kind of been the, the model is finding what we identify as a new need, and then trying to find a partner to join this team. So I think in terms of whether someone had to have a confirmed case, more and more often, almost all testing is done through home antigen tests now. So we largely take the word of the patient and, and their report of symptoms or from their primary care doctor to identify that they had a confirmed case. Uh, it's very uncommon that we have the actual test result. We also see people who were sick in the very early spring of the pandemic where testing wasn't being done for most patients unless you were in the hospital. And so we saw many of those who were searching for answers and had been in some ways kind of the most ignored because people thought there was no explanation for their symptoms or long COVID isn't real and they didn't have a test to prove that they were infected. And we've, we see those patients as well in our clinic, and we don't have a strict criteria for that. The final piece is also that long before this, for, for centuries, actually post-acute infectious syndromes like this have been described. And there are many people who have had 
ME-CFS, myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, or other persistent unexplained sequelae like we're seeing with long COVID from other potential causes. And now we hear from those patients as well, who for a very long have been seeking both clinical care and answers in terms of research. And we're hoping that we can increasingly incorporate those patients into our clinic. I'll, I'll just piggyback a bit onto what Jason said. A, to reinforce his experience, I think listening to Jason describe how his how, how their program has um, evolved and uh, and some of the challenges that they're facing, I, I think we can say that we have encountered you know all of the same experiences. So you know identifying um, our key population, you know who is going to benefit the most from these programs. And, and we recognize we can't possibly see every single person who's had COVID-19 in one of these programs. So who's gonna most benefit? How can we partner with our primary care colleagues you know, to help those patients who perhaps are not able to um, visit a, a, you know, a multidisciplinary post-COVID program? So identifying our population, I think really identifying who is at risk for development of symptoms um, understanding the trajectory of those symptoms so that we can best counsel our patients. And then interventions, you know, recognizing that there is a paucity of data to support any one particular intervention, whether it be, you know, behavioral intervention or medications for this population. And so one of the strengths, I think, of these programs and where perhaps they can be most useful is really in um, piloting some of these interventions in a, in a rigorous way to, to understand what's working and for whom. Um, and that that is actually something that has been lacking from the post-intensive care syndrome field for quite some time. You know, we have decades of literature describing um, the impairments that survivors of critical illness experience and risk factors. You know, we really have a, a pretty good handle on the epidemiology of post-intensive care syndrome, but where we're lacking is um, data in the post-ICU realm in terms of interventions that might be effective. We know what works in the ICU to help prevent um, um, PICs, but you know, interventions in the post-discharge setting. And I think the, the same is true for post-COVID condition, um, which interventions in the ambulatory setting might be most beneficial. Thank you both so much for sharing that. I mean, I think that just the model of this, of the both of the clinics that you that you each help run is just remarkable. And while you want to cast a wide net of patients that you're able to see, um, and those that you just talked about, and that you want to identify who could benefit the most, I want to follow up a little bit more about um, you just mentioned, you know, PICS or post intensive care syndrome. And we had Dell Needham and Wes um, Ely on the show a few weeks ago to talk to us about PICS, and they also brought up a really interesting point about bias of who's seen in PICS clinic. Um, you know, they mentioned that our understanding may be very skewed uh, because some patients just don't have the resources, the physical ability or knowledge to even make it to a clinic to be seen. Um, and Anne and Jason, I'm hoping that both of you can extend on this a little bit more and um, identify our, um, you know, just describe to listeners, are there any populations of patients with long COVID-19 that you just think aren't ending up in clinics because of this potential bias? Yeah, that is a fantastic point. Um, and I think really important to keep in mind, 
um, as we're seeing studies come out on long COVID. So first off, yes, just to emphasize that issue around selection bias, you know, who comes to the clinic, you know, who, who is actually able to engage with a clinic. Um, so if you're only studying a population of people who appear in a long COVID clinic or a post-COVID clinic, there is going to be some degree of selection bias there. I think we see the same sort of things, um, you know, with uh, survey-based studies that rely on things like social media, you know, to recruit patients um, to complete surveys. It's not to say that those studies aren't helpful. They are. Um, But we have to be careful about making broad generalizations about things like incidence and prevalence and risk factors um, based on on, um, those types of studies. And the same is true for for our post-COVID clinics. Um, And I think this, again, is a problem that has gone back to even prior to COVID um, and ICU follow-up or ICU recovery programs as well. There traditionally has been um, a relatively high no-show rate um, and a high loss to follow-up. And I think that is probably uh, multifactorial. One is spreading the word, you know, who, that these, these programs exist. Again, identifying on our end which patients we think might be most likely to benefit um, and getting the word out to those patients and families. And then as you pointed out, access to care. So I worry about our most vulnerable populations not being able you know, to access these programs, whether it be um, because of insurance barriers, uh, whether it be because of geographical limitations. I think all of these are, are potential reasons. I think um, you know, many of our patients are experiencing um, joblessness, insecurity in terms of home and food. Um, And all of these things can make it challenging when you have so many other stressors to address your your health and and, and to prioritize your health. And so 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 many factors, I think, can um, affect a a patient's ability to come into the program. And so I do worry um, about our most vulnerable populations in terms of being able to access um, these programs. And I, I think this is again, something that the pandemic has highlighted. And, you know, we can talk about how we can support an individual patient who does come to our program. um, And when we're able to see that patient face to face, but really there are much broader healthcare um, and political implications in terms of addressing social determinants of health um, so that we are really improving care across the board. Yeah, I would strongly second that piece about the inequities and the demographics, which has been a common topic now, really nicely highlighted in media stories about who is able to access clinics versus who was affected by COVID-19. And it was clear after several months of doing this, the demographics weren't lining up. We were clearly missing people, especially people who are not primarily English speaking who were severely affected by acute COVID-19 in our hospitals, and yet we weren't seeing them in our clinic. And we had to build partnerships with community health centers and other hospitals around the the city to try to engage with patients so that they could get the care they need as well. And one of the projects I'm involved in is called Project ECHO through the CDC. Project ECHO is bringing expertise in many different diseases to an underserved area. And this has been done for hepatitis C, for HIV, 
there are projects now for long COVID. And the one I'm involved in is in San Diego in their federally qualified health centers. So we discuss patients with primary care physicians in that those health centers, and they convey the story of the patient, their effects from COVID-19, and then a panel of specialists seeing these patients in other locations weighs in. And the idea is that the primary care physicians ultimately become self-sufficient through this learning process. And we see stories of from their primary care physicians of patients who are incredibly severely affected and have had very little ability to access care. And they do an amazing job taking care of these patients within the limitations of the resources. And I'm always blown away what they're able to accomplish with what they have available compared to what we might have available, fortunately, at a large academic hospital. Um, and that has been something clear through the Project ECHO and through our experience at clinic, that patients who are really severely affected by COVID-19 are being affected uh, by long COVID, but not getting the same care because of health inequities. Well, that sounds like a really great project. I mean, I'm glad that we're recognizing it in real time too, and, and hopefully we can stem some of that tide or correct some of those inequities. So Christina mentioned that we'd done an episode recently on post-ICU syndrome or PICS, and you guys have both talked about this already. Certainly, there's clearly a big overlap between this COVID population, post-COVID population, and uh, PICS. Uh, but as you mentioned, sort of the population and demographic has been changing. So I just wanted to ask both of you of how you think about the overlap between post-COVID and PICS. Um, are there unique distinguishing factors that you see in someone with what we call long COVID who is in the ICU with critical illness, or does this more fall under the PICS bucket if they get to that severity of disease? Uh, maybe, Jason, we can start with you. Sure. So I would say for people coming out of the ICU, whether it's from COVID-19 or otherwise, we do take a similar approach in terms of screening for physical impairment, mental health impairments, and cognitive impairment. And it, it would be probably very challenging to distinguish what we might see with cognitive impairment from COVID-19 from what's been described for a long time, cognitive impairment from respiratory failure or shock. Um, there are some unique aspects to COVID, like the persistent changes in smell and taste that for some people two years later, that's one of their main issues is they can't eat or enjoy eating because things taste rotten to them or they get strange smells. Um, another example might be the unique aspect of severe persistent fatigue. Even when someone has physically recovered, like people do with physical therapy after the ICU, just being able to walk around the house and yet suddenly feel severe exhaustion and have to lie down, that's, that's very unusual and, and a unique aspect that we see with post-viral syndromes like ME-CFS and with long COVID. But otherwise, we would start definitely with a routine approach to post-intensive care syndrome, addressing the severe physical impairment, cognitive impairment, and mental health needs. Great. Thank you so much. Anna, anything to add? I know you do a lot of work in PICS as well. Yeah, no, I, um, I love this question. Um, and so I think about uh, Carol Hodgson uh, published a paper several months ago um, looking at comparing patients with COVID-19 respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation and historical controls of non-COVID-19 um, patients with respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation. And 
you know, each of these two groups of patients had phone surveys that were conducted at about six months, assessing some of those core domains of PICS, so mental health, things like anxiety, depression, PTSD symptoms, cognitive function, uh, physical function. Um, you know, and, and as anticipated, they appreciated that the patients with COVID-19 respiratory failure generally um, had a uh, longer duration of mechanical ventilation and length of stay. But what was really interesting is that the incidence of um, new impairments in mental health, cognition, physical function, um, measures of quality of life were really similar across the two groups. Hmm. So I think that's, that's really quite interesting. Um, and I recently gave a uh, pulmonary and critical care medicine grand rounds at, at, um, at Johns Hopkins, and I titled it uh, COVID-19 um, and PICS, Back to Basics, because I really think, you know, that gets back to recognizing that perhaps our patients with acute respiratory failure in the ICU are more similar than not in terms of their risk of developing you know, post-ICU um, complications. And so I think about the things that I'm sure that Dale and Wes really focused on in the recent uh, PICS podcast, but emphasizing the importance for all of our patients coming into the ICU with respiratory failure of starting to think about their recovery you know, the moment that they hit the door and the importance of rehabilitation across the continuum of care. So early mobility starting, you know, right away in that first 48 hours of, of critical illness, um, focusing on guidelines um, to manage things like sedation to reduce incidence of delirium, uh, because we know those things uh, can improve outcomes. So, you know, recognizing the PADIS guidelines, um, you know, implementing the um, ABCDEF bundle, you know, things that we know are good critical care, um, allowing families into the ICU, um, you know, to, to support our patients. So I think recognizing that by doing those things, we are supporting our patients in recovery. And another really important piece, um, you know, that, that we've been thinking about um, is that we know based on prior PICS literature, that things like anxiety, depression symptoms, PTSD symptoms, fatigue, we know that many of our patients, uh, two thirds of our patients will experience fatigue at a year after ICU, non-COVID ICU patients. But all of these things, these um, measures of mental health and fatigue consistently across studies, reason for admission to the ICU or duration of stay in the ICU, these things are not predictive of these post-ICU complications. Um, and so I think that sort of aligns with Carol Hodgson's paper, um, you know, showing us that perhaps these patients are more similar than they are different. I think the things that I and we all worry about is perhaps a backward slip in terms of managing sedation um, and access to rehabilitation in the ICU in the setting of the pandemic. Um, and hence, I think, you know, thinking about back to basics and the things that we know that we can do well. Yeah, I love that. Take care of the things that we know can be work and preventative, and then we can layer on things that we notice are unique. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, and, and I was um, able to able to hear your um, grand rounds presentation. It was just um, it was just so fascinating to also hear that. And I think you um, alluded to this right now that we are able to take what we've learned from PICS and based on the literature, um, what we had about 
um, patients with COVID and critical illness in the ICU. But I want to bring up another, um, you know, I think important group, and that is, you know, those individuals that had mild COVID that didn't require hospitalization, or you know, perhaps moderate COVID who required inpatient stay, but perhaps that was brief and more uncomplicated than and uncomplicated compared to others. Um, but continue to still have symptoms following their infection. And I know Jason alluded to sleep and fatigue um, earlier in our episode, but Anne, I wanted to see if you could highlight some of the most common post-COVID symptoms um, from patients that are um, going to your clinic. Absolutely. Um, So I, I think... First off, many of the symptoms that we're seeing are really complex multifactorial symptoms. Um, So I think important to recognize that for any given patient and between patients, the potential contributors to their symptoms might be quite variable. Um, But the things that we tend to see, so we see neuropsychological impairment, so patients describing difficulty with things like memory and concentration, Um, colloquially termed brain fog. Uh, We also see patients experiencing anxiety and depression symptoms. Uh, We certainly see um, patients with breathlessness, cough, um, chest pain. Um, You know, as Jason mentioned, we do see um, quite a few patients with fatigue. We also see patients with a cluster of symptoms, things like palpitations, dizziness, um, uh, activity limitation that sort of fall under an umbrella term of dysautonomia. Um, We can see persistent persistent loss of um, particularly smell and sometimes taste as well. Um, So really uh, symptoms that cross multiple organ systems and I think are relatively complex in nature. Thanks so much, Anne, for that um, insight and for sharing. And I think all, all four of us today, many listening today, have encountered patients um, or friends or family um, mentioning all of those symptoms. And I think the subjective piece is um, obviously so important and reflects how patients are doing um, as well as their you know current quality of life. But I'd love to know if there are any objective findings that we um, are finding that we are seeing that line up with these symptoms. So Jason, are there any common abnormalities, if any, that you've noticed on diagnostic testing for patients that you're seeing in clinic? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, and for the purpose of our, the Palm Peeps podcast, I'll talk about the pulmonary aspects um, that have been described. So many people experience shortness of breath. And what was striking when I was first talking to patients who had mild acute COVID and were short of breath, They would often say, even just talking to you right now on the phone, I feel short of breath. Hmm. I feel like there's something constricting around my chest. It feels when I take a deep breath, like it's just not satisfying. That was a really common description. And we tried to begin actually having people describe shortness of breath in the standard way. So we could see, is that the way most people are describing it? And it was striking because one, we see very severe lung diseases where people can have a conversation comfortably if they're not in acute respiratory failure. If they have chronic lung disease, it's still somewhat unusual to be having a conversation and to feel short of breath or uncomfortable at that moment versus exertional shortness of breath. So I began to think that combined with the fact that most people coming in were having full pulmonary function tests and were within the normal limits, at least of their pulmonary function tests, not knowing what their baseline necessarily was because most 
previously didn't have a, a lung disease and hadn't had any prior pulmonary function tests. So it, it was striking to have the normal PFTs or PFTs within normal range and such substantial breathing discomfort. And we began like many people in the pulmonary clinic would, even if it was unrelated to long COVID thinking, what are the other mechanisms of shortness of breath that they could be experiencing to explain this neuromuscular, vocal cord, upper airway, um, what, what exactly is going on to explain this? There have been a number of studies, both on this unexplained shortness of breath and, and then just generally on people who have survived different degrees of severity of COVID-19 to understand what can we see in terms of lung impairment, in terms of pulmonary function itself versus neuromuscular or airways disease or upper airways. So some of the early studies were ones doing PFTs on people who had either been hospitalized or not hospitalized. And as would be expected and what was, what's been seen in other viruses, there's a fair percentage of people hospitalized who three to six months later have impairment, most commonly on, in diffusion, because that's just a sensitive marker of some still existing lung injury. And it was less common, but still present in a fair number of people who had COVID-19 and weren't hospitalized, who were tested four months later. That was one study in Annals ATS. Then there was more recently studies of inspiratory expiratory CT scans to look for small airways disease and, and air trapping and found that a fair proportion of patients, I think it was somewhere between maybe between 10 to 20% who presented for evaluation of shortness of breath after having COVID-19 had evidence, some evidence of air trapping on their inspiratory expiratory chest CTs. So perhaps there's in some people a bronchiolitis type of process, at least in that early phase in the early months that could be explaining some of the tightness and breathing discomfort. Um, but we then also see people who all of that is normal. They're really very detailed workup short of exercise testing, and we can't fully explain the breathing discomfort. And they're, they're very uncomfortable with their breathing, even at rest and walking around. There have been, there's one, I think notable CPET cardiopulmonary exercise test study that was in chest with David Sistrom is one of the authors and he's done research on MECFS, myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome prior to the pandemic, also involving CPETs with an interest in the fatigue aspect and shortness of breath. And this was, these were invasive CPETs with PA catheters. And they found that one of the primary abnormalities was impairment in oxygen extraction in their, the venous saturation. And these patients had had normal workups with pulmonary function tests. I believe they had echocardiograms before, and they had preserved cardiac output response to exercise. Because many people who are skeptics have said, well, could this just be deconditioning? And I think anyone who's a clinician seeing these patients is convinced this is not your usual deconditioning. Someone who had three days of COVID-19 symptoms and was a triathlete before this and is exhausted and short of breath after. Couldn't be simple deconditioning. But this exercise test kind of pointed towards perhaps something at the peripheral level with oxygen extraction, whether it's vascular or cellular, such as mitochondrial, that could be playing a role. 
And there have been signals pointing to that with post-acute viral syndromes before the pandemic as well. Hmm. So that's, that's some of kind of the interesting data. And we're trying to dig into why people are feeling so limited physically in ways that we can't explain through routine testing. That's really fascinating, Jason. And I feel like in some ways it's helpful just to know that you can discuss these possibilities with patients, you know, small areas, disease, constrictive bronchiolitis, even if they're all normal, potentially there's this impaired either mitochondrial function or O2 extraction. And, and I feel like sometimes patients are validated just from people saying, hey, there is something abnormal when we do these yeah. really advanced yeah. tests. Yeah. Just a follow-up question for you, Anne. Any, have you heard of any other you know, biological mechanisms that are driving some of the symptoms or any um, other hypothesis um, that you've heard that can help explain these? Well, I think there are a lot of hypotheses. Um, Jason hit on a few. You know, we hear um, theories around inflammation, autoimmunity, endovascular dysfunction and microclotting, um, even reactivation of latent viruses, viral res reservoirs. But, but I think important to recognize that all of these are uh, hypothesis generating. Uh, the data regarding each of these hypotheses are really coming from relatively small studies and so, and sometimes, you know, without very clear control groups, and it's hard to identify those control groups. So I think, again, when we're seeing these patients in clinic, we're really seeing a heterogeneous group of symptoms. And it's almost as if no two patients are exactly alike. I would anticipate that perhaps we should be thinking about phenotypes. We should be thinking about you know, when we're, we're considering mechanisms and we're thinking about interventions, really carefully considering the outcomes that we're studying and perhaps focusing on specific domains, recognizing that there's probably not going to be a one size fits all answer in terms of underlying mechanism or interventions, you know, to address symptoms. So I think um, it's great to see the literature growing and evolving, and I think it's really exciting. And it's really hard to not have answers to give our patients, but I think we do need to be patient and sort of um, cautious and uh, overstating any one particular theory uh, at this point. And I remind patients that when we think about long-term outcomes, we're thinking about many months to years after an illness. And while it feels like we've been in this pandemic forever at this point, you know, when we're thinking about long-term outcomes, we're really just sort of scratching the surface. That's great. I, I certainly love phenotyping. We've we talked about this on this show before, so I, I think that's a really fascinating answer. Um, well, no discussion of COVID would be complete without talking about two things, which are vaccines and variants. Um, so, Anne, I want to start with you in talking about the variants. There certainly have been changes in we think severity of disease, communicability of disease, certainly rates of disease, uh, which are multifactorial, including sort of social impacts, but also the variants as well. So curious if you're seeing any impact on variants on who's coming to clinic uh, or what kind of symptoms those patients have or, or anything that you take into consideration when seeing a post-COVID patient. Sure. Yeah. And I, I think the, the short answer is that we don't know if there's any association between a particular variant and um, risk or trajectory of, of long COVID thereafter. And, you know, part of that is that on at a patient level, most centers are not sequencing every positive PCR test, right? 
Um, and so we don't know if the patient sitting in front of us most, you know, certainly had, you know, Delta or Omicron, et cetera. Um, also recognizing that many, many tests now are being conducted at home. So we're not even really able to, you know, tease out each and every um, positive test at this point. And then, um, you know, if we think about, well, perhaps we could look at, you know, long COVID um, or post-COVID condition uh, as it relates to sort of each surge um, in a particular variant. But I think there are so many confounders there as well. You know, you certainly have periods of overlap um, between variants as we transition. And then other major factors like prior infection. Is this somebody's second, third, fourth infection? And vaccination. So, you know, I think all of these factors make it really challenging to tease out any, you know, relative contribution of a specific variant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like this is one thing about the pandemic that's so interesting. It's like things are changing all at once. Variants are changing and vaccines are changing and our treatments are changing. So it's always hard to sparse out the specifics. Given that prelude of how this will be difficult to answer, Jason, I still want to come to you with two specific questions about vaccines, because I think this is a huge topic and I get these questions uh, all the time. I don't know what to say, so I'm going to turn it to you. (laughs) So uh, uh, the first is, does the vaccine change your risk of getting long COVID? You know, I think we're seeing more evidence that it doesn't change your risk of getting or only minimally decreases your risk of getting a mild COVID case, but it greatly improves your protection against severe disease at hospitalization. So does it change your risk of getting long COVID? And the second is if a patient has had COVID and has has some long COVID symptoms or some lingering symptoms, is it okay for them to get a booster or their first vaccine? Uh, Is this something we're still recommending for them? Yeah, these are really, really common questions, both from from patients and from anyone asking about long COVID. So uh, the literature that's been published and that I've seen also in in preprints for vaccine effect on long COVID does suggest there's a reduced risk of long COVID. It's not that it could completely prevent it, but there have been studies, national studies from Israel and from the UK that have pointed towards a similar signal of reduced risk. And that was even kind of consistent, the more vaccine, the full boosting, if you've had that compared to just one vaccine, for example, the risk decreased further. Hmm. So that type of dose response relationship is, is helpful also in supporting the data. There have been a, there was a study out of Seattle, I believe that looked at risk factors, including some, um, biological or biomarker type risk factors for long COVID among people infected. And level of viremia was a strong risk factor. So I think that also supports the the idea that if you had a strong antibody response and a strong immune response established for the virus, then you should be at a lower risk, though unfortunately still not preventative of long COVID itself fully. In terms of the effect of vaccines among people who currently are experiencing long COVID symptoms, it's very variable. There have been several studies on that as well because there was an interest anecdotally with people reporting initially that they were having substantial improvement in their long COVID symptoms with vaccination. And so there was a thought along with that idea of viral reservoirs or some persistent infection, could the vaccines be playing a role in clearing some something along those lines? That's not fully answered yet, but I would say it's kind of a split maybe a third to 
to half of people feel improved after having vaccination. Most people don't feel any change. We definitely see patients who had long COVID symptoms that they felt a flare of with vaccination. And for many of those people, it subsides over several weeks, but some people have had really persistent setbacks after having a vaccine. So we recommend vaccination, but it's, it's all an individual choice for someone if they're having really severe, persistent long COVID symptoms and they're worried about how they responded to a prior booster, for example. And then you have to, like everything in medicine, weigh the risks and the benefits of doing that. I still worry more about the risk of getting a new severe COVID infection and what that would do for someone's symptoms than the risk of vaccines. And so generally speaking, we would definitely recommend vaccines for everyone who's able to get them. That's great. Yeah, I think we're all on the boat of recommending vaccines. It's really helpful to know that the long COVID can be reduced, the risk of it. But, you know, I think in these specific situations, we're also, I think, all big fans of communication between patients and doctors and deciding what's right for you uh, in very uh, specific circumstances. Uh, you mentioned some risk factors, you know, the viremia, I think, has been a huge one for both severe disease and this. Uh, for Question for both of you, Ray and Jason, uh, besides thinking about vaccination status, certainly being unvaccinated, being the biggest risk factor for all of these things, uh, are there other major risk factors that people should know about if they're getting COVID that says like, hey, I might be at risk for developing long COVID uh, symptoms afterwards, and so I should pay a little bit more attention to this? That's a great question. Um, I think that we are seeing pretty clear epidemiologic data at this point that initial severity of illness, um, so greater initial severity of illness, does seem to be a risk factor for developing um, post-COVID complications. Uh, so we see this, for example, um, our colleagues in China who have been studying one of the larger cohorts of hospitalized um, COVID-19 patients and seeing that those who required higher levels of respiratory support were in the intensive care unit um, had a greater risk of developing symptoms, you know, that persist for a longer period of time. Now, among the non-hospitalized patients, those with mild illness, it, it's a bit more challenging um, because, again, identifying that population um, it is is a complicating factor. So. When we, you know, we have seen some survey-based data or data from long COVID programs um, suggesting some risk factors, uh, but again, I worry a bit about selection bias in those cases. Um, and so I, I'm really looking forward to data, you know, hopefully coming out of things like the Recover Initiative and Inspire Initiative, where we're, you know, prospectively following patients um, over the course of months to years really paying attention um, and focusing on cohort retention so that we're hopefully reducing as much as possible, not eliminating, um, you know, some of those biases so we can get a much better sense of incidence and prevalence and risk factors and overall trajectory. Yeah, and I can add um, one thing that's been interesting and often comes up is throughout the pandemic and more recently with long COVID, studies getting very, very different estimates of the same thing, such as how common is long COVID? A study reported patients come because they heard on CNN, 50% of people get long COVID. In this other media outlet, this other study said 10%. How are those two numbers possibly in existence yet so different? And it really comes down to how things are measured 
how they're defining long COVID, what type of data they're using. Are they looking at health records for people one year after having known COVID-19 and seeing, did they have one of these 20 symptoms in a health encounter versus are they accurately surveying the population and identifying in a sample that represents the population symptoms that persist after long COVID longitudinally. Places like the UK have done this very well because of their national health system and existing health surveys that have been in place. And the US more recently through things like the Household Pulse Survey, which is a survey of households throughout the US have included long COVID questionnaires. So I think we're getting closer to a more accurate estimate, but I'm really hopeful very detailed longitudinal studies like Recover will help answer that question. Something for us to look forward to, definitely, to get some more information. I think, Jason, you bring up a really good point, too, um, in terms of identifying outcomes. You know, I think it gets back to the importance of some of those core outcome sets uh, so that we're in agreement on what we're measuring and how we're measuring it and how we're defining things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you both so much um, for this discussion so far. I know I've learned, personally, I've learned so much within the last hour, um, but I want to touch just touch base on just one more topic. Um, I don't think we could leave, um, we could end the episode with talking a little bit more just about treatment responses and kind of the natural history that you're seeing um, of long COVID in patients in clinic. So, um, Anne, I w- wanted to know, I guess I'll open up to both Jason and Anne. Um, can you Tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing in your post-COVID clinics to help patients, you know, specifically if you can comment on uh, pharmacologic, non-pharmacologic interventions and any specific referrals that you think are important um, for patients. And um, Jason, I'll go ahead and start with you for this one. Okay, sure. And I can talk about patients with who had mild acute COVID and maybe Ann can talk about the post-ICU patients just because there's, this is... A challenging and very, very big uh, question. Sure. So, so for patients who had acute mild illness and they're coming to us, for example, with that constellation of fatigue, breathing discomfort, and cognitive impairment, unfortunately, right now, there's not an easy treatment for the underlying biological mechanism because that's not yet known. And we're hoping in the coming months that there'll be new clinical trials through Recover and the NIH that will start to target those mechanisms. But for now, a lot is based on symptoms. So for example, for fatigue, one key branching point is how someone has experienced a response to activity. Some people for many months have been limited to walking around their house and then having to lie down because they feel what's been called post-exertional malaise or this almost physical illness symptom after minimal activity. Others are, are tired, or exhausted and yet have somewhat pushed through and have not experienced kind of negative consequences of that pushing through. And we've built this team of physical rehab specialists, physical therapists who are working over day in and day out with people who have had long COVID to understand how to best help them. For some people, you have to really actually reduce their activity, rest and pace and tailor their day around what they're able to do currently so that they don't push and crash and get stuck in this cycle where every other day they they lie in bed for the whole day. Others are progressing with physical rehab and can go through a more traditional physical rehab where they can progress and improve their strength and improve their fatigue. Along with that, sleep is almost always affected. And so we 
when we can and, and get insurance approval, we try to do the most detailed sleep study possible to understand what's happening on their polysomnogram. And especially for people with hypersomnia who are sleeping much longer than usual, can we explain why that's the case? Ensure there's no sleep disordered breathing issue. And then there are medications that treat that. Stimulant medications actually have been helpful for people's cognitive issues during the day, as well as fatigue. And there are medications focused on improving sleep quality or the depth of sleep now that could be potentially helpful. So we try to, for fatigue as an example, identify those modifiable components and also what we know from other post-acute infectious fatiguing illnesses like ME-CFS, which I mentioned, that have been helpful for patients. And there's like a whole host of things people have tried on their own or come to us having tried supplements or things they've read about. And we try to provide education around what, what our experience is and what we would recommend versus what we don't recommend based on that experience. So that's just one example for fatigue because I think actually we could talk forever about this and it would be hard. A lot of the, the answers would be we don't know, unfortunately, right now. And it's hard to give specific medical advice without having kind of an individual relationship with the patient. But that's a fascinating paradigm to share, you know, that, that we see these effects, we see, we know we have some interventions and we sort of have to tailor it based on how you're responding in a constant, you know, cycle of saying, let's try this and see how it goes and see how we're improving until we maybe have the biological mechanisms more worked out one day, hopefully. Right. Yeah. And anything um, else to add for, um, you know, those patients that may have been um, hospitalized in intensive care? Yeah, I think just a reminder that um, that we need to be systematically screening for impairments um, after COVID-19 and after critical illness. So, you know, screening for um, things like anxiety, depression, PTSD symptoms, screening for cognitive impairment um, and impairments in daily functioning. Um, you know, some of the work that we've been doing with the Johns Hopkins Memory and Alzheimer's Treatment Center with Dr. Esther O and Tracy Vandersdahl has focused on understanding cognitive impairment after um, COVID-19. And, and I think one of the striking findings thus far, um, which really, um, you know, is very similar to what we've seen in terms of survey-based measures of cognition you know, prior to COVID-19 and in the ICU is oftentimes a disconnect between subjective and objective findings on testing. And what that says to me is that we can't be simply relying on patient self-report to tell us that they're having difficulty with memory or concentration, but we really need to be systematically screening for these things. Um, so I, I think that's first off, in order to treat something, we have to know that it's there. So we need to be looking for it. And that's particularly important for our post-ICU patients, because as I mentioned before, a lot of the traditional markers of things like severity of illness and length of stay and uh, reason for admission are not going to be predictive of some of those post-ICU complications. So we need to be looking for these issues um, for all of our patients. And then recognizing that we need to be emphasizing the importance of rehabilitation across the continuum of care. So again, good care for our ICU patients that can help prevent long-term complications starts in the ICU. And then strong communication um, throughout those transitions in care as our patients transition to the wards or inpatient rehabilitation and then into the outpatient setting. So there really needs to be a coordinated 
um, approach that includes things like physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech language pathology, neuropsychology. These things are not optional. They are necessary, um, essential parts of our patient's care. Thank you so much, Anne. And I think we'll have time for one um, additional question. And this one may be um, somewhat uh, a more challenging question. And I'll open this up to both you, Anne, and Jason. Um, you both have mentioned that there are ongoing trials to prospectively look at patients uh, with long COVID and look at symptoms and outcomes. But from your experience thus far, um, have you been finding that um, symptoms of long COVID in the patients that you're seeing are resolving over time? Or are there some portions that you think are going to be permanent? I think what, what Anne had mentioned earlier and, and Dave alluded to also about recognizing trajectory and phenotypes has been really helpful. This is something that clinicians naturally do. And as you start to see people and, and continue over the course of years in one condition, you see a lot of patterns that may not be described in cross-sectional studies or people who aren't seeing these patients may not have recognized in the same way. And one of those patterns definitely is on trajectory of symptom resolution, especially for people with long COVID after mild acute illness. We were seeing patients who were coming to us at three to four months. And then by the six month follow-up, they said, I'm feeling so much better. My shortness of breath has improved. I'm back to work. I'm doing more physically. But we also were seeing people who were coming to us in that time period who over the next two years were having this roller coaster of ups and downs, and they were continuing to have persistent debilitating symptoms and had not returned to work over the course of years because of things like fatigue and cognitive impairment. So those kind of buckets are things I begin to think about as I see patients, depending on how long they are into their symptoms and asking them about the course of symptoms from acute infection to when I see them it can be really telling in how they are, are making either slow but steady progress or having worsening or having these ups and downs. I think there's, there are a large portion of people who are having persistent symptoms around three months, but are making slow but steady progress each month. And we're seeing them recover. And we've seen those patients recover from what they feel subjectively fully, and they're back to work and exercising. And then we see others, unfortunately, who years out are still having ups and downs. And we have to identify, are there triggers? I think for those patients, a lot of what we hope to discover is underlying biology. Is there is there a persistent trigger, for example, for inflammation or for some sort of effect on their ability to recover from activity or for their brain's ability to recover from cognitive activity? Because the cognitive brain fog is very much like a mental fatigue for many people. Um, and so those are the groups that we see, see people certainly recovering slowly but steadily, and we encourage them and work with them in that process. And others who we have to continue to unfortunately see these ups and downs over the course of years. Yeah, I think um, when, when we tend to see patients in our clinic, many of them are very worried about the long-term implications of their symptoms. And I try to take a step back with them um, and sort of think on a population level that most people have been infected with COVID-19 at this point a smaller subset of them have had symptoms that have lasted beyond two to three months. And overwhelmingly, we see that patients tend to improve with time. So I think the overall message, the take home is patients overall 
do tend to improve with time. Um, where they plateau, you know, whether they get back to their pre-COVID baseline varies from patient to patient. Um, but I do think it's helpful to, um, you know, allow our patients that uh, bit of optimism or hope that things can improve and that we do often see that things um, improve with time. And for those patients who continue to have ups and downs, um, who are still really struggling with those symptoms, I think that's where the rehabilitation approach is so helpful and important. Like we recognize we don't have all the answers. We don't have a medication that we can give them right now that's going to make things better. But rehabilitation services, things like physical therapy, neuropsychology, speech language pathology can help our patients to work through those symptoms and find ways to cope so that they can continue to engage in some of those life activities that bring them a sense of reward and accomplishment. And, you know, we think about focusing, you know, perhaps not on dampening down every every symptom that we're seeing, um, but in some cases, learning to live with those symptoms, but continue to experience reward um, and celebrate the small steps, uh, you know, in terms of their recovery. That's all great advice for counseling these patients. That's really helpful. Well, I think this has been just an absolutely amazing conversation. You know, I thank you both so much for all of your time and for hearing about this and going through everything. I, I think this is going to be really helpful for me, really helpful for people taking care of patients with uh, long COVID or post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 and for patients who are listening maybe to hear about what other people's experiences are. We like to end each episode with one takeaway point from all of us. You know, mine is, it just kind of strikes me in hearing it's so great to hear how the definitions are kind of continuing to evolve based on what you see and this multidisciplinary collaborative approach to this population. In some ways, I wonder if these clinics are the model for what other clinics will be like in the future for other diseases, where we know that it's going to be a tailored response. Each patient is slightly different, even if they fall in a small, a big bucket, uh, and that there are going to be individualized approaches outside of physicians that are really going to help people get better. So it's great to hear how these have evolved as this new illness has been defined and continues to get uh, treated and, and hopefully improve. Uh, Monty, what about you? Any big takeaway from the episode? Yeah, I think I have uh, two, and I'll be brief. I have one from Anne and one from Jason. And I think from Anne, um, just realizing, um, as Anne mentioned, that the the symptoms from long COVID are going to be heterogeneous and not every um, patient is going to be the same. So being sensitive and aware to that. And I think, Jason, what I thought was really interesting um, is just really thinking about potential triggers um, that may be uh, triggering um, recurring symptoms of long COVID-19. Um, I, don't, I don't think I thought of that before. So that was really insightful to hear. And what about you? You know, I think um, I have been very humbled by working in this field and amidst the pandemic um, and sort of recognizing and accepting that we don't have all of the answers all of the time. And so I think I tend to be optimistic and think about the things that we do know that work. You know, so we talked about um, good critical care that focuses on mobilizing our patients and reducing um, exposure to sedation and reducing delirium, you know, I think on a broader level, things like vaccinations that can prevent infection um, or decrease the initial severity of illness um, and other measures like masking and distancing when appropriate, you know, to help prevent those infections and decrease severity in the first place. You know, we do have things that we know can help patients and are beneficial. Great. And Jason, a takeaway point for everybody? 
Yeah, I think um, this has been wonderful. My my takeaway is really this experience with working with patients with long COVID has brought me back to the core aspect of medicine, which is a, a relationship between a clinician and a patient and being thoughtful about how to help that person in the things that matter to them and listening more than talking. And that has been, I think, the most valuable tool that I learned from day one of medical school to help people with an illness that you don't necessarily have a simple medical solution for. And yet, as a clinician, you can still help them. That's fantastic. And we hope that podcasts in general help people be better listeners as it goes. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show. This was fantastic. Thank you all for listening. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode. Uh, This episode was produced and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor, and the music is original music by Eric Rogers. We'll see you next time. Mm